You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on June 30th, 2019, Gafcon Sunday, a reading from the first book of Kings. And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today is a special Sunday because this is Gafcon Sunday a Sunday when we celebrate the movement of God in the Anglican Church around the world, and particularly the ministry of GAFCON, which is a global organization standing firm for a gospel Anglicanism, a biblical Anglicanism around the world, and and making sure that that's preserved for future generations. As I was reading the the readings this morning, it it brought to mind uh, some events that happened quite a few years ago now, uh, particularly in 2003. Some of you were members of this church in 2003, and so there are probably incidents that are fresh in your minds as well, though thankfully now fading into the distance. In 2003, Gene Robinson was elected to be the Bishop of New Hampshire, and he was the first openly homosexual man uh, to be elected to that office. And this caused ripples throughout the Episcopal Church and throughout the Anglican Communion worldwide. And some of those, the effects of those ripples are still playing out on the global stage today. At that time, I was a seminarian. I had just started seminary in Boston at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I was figuring out uh, what it meant to be an Anglican in the midst of a school that was predominantly Presbyterian and evangelical in a, a very broad sense. And so my friends were coming to me, this was on not just Episcopal Church news, but national news, and saying, what is it that you Episcopalians believe? And to my shame, I I actually didn't know. My church hadn't prepared me well for what I was facing in seminary. They had taught me the Bible in Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh was a wonderful Orthodox diocese, but I had been sheltered from what was going on in the wider Anglican Communion and in the wider Episcopal Church. I was blessed to have an Orthodox bishop and an Orthodox diocese and to be surrounded by Orthodox parishes who knew the gospel and preached it as if it was just the normal thing. But in fact, it was anything but normal in the Episcopal Church in those days. 
And so as time moved on in, in 2003, Gene Robinson was consecrated as bishop in New Hampshire. And, uh, and just a few months later, I felt a, a distinct call from God to move from Gordon-Conwell in Boston, where I was living, with a seminarian friend of mine, up to New Hampshire to minister to a number of Episcopalians who felt like they needed to leave their church and didn't have a place to go. And so we started putting this congregation together and planting this church. And of course, one of the things that you have to do early on in planting a church is name your church. Because how are people going to come and attend a church if they don't know what its name is or where it's located? We have to have some kind of an identity. And so my seminarian friend, his name was Esau Macaulay, still a wonderful friend of mine and a, a priest who's now uh, serving newly at, at Wheaton uh, University up in Chicago as a professor. He said, Chris, I think we should call it the 7,000. And I scratched my head. I, I had no idea what he was referring to. I said, you know, can you tell me a little bit more? And he referred me back to this passage we read today from 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, if you remember the context, Elijah has just had this prophetic duel with all the prophets of Baal. It's a, a very dramatic scene where he encourages all the prophets of Baal to sacrifice to Baal, and the one true God would be evident because Elisha, or Elijah would also sacrifice to the one true God, and whichever God consumed the sacrifice with fire of his own, that was the one true God. And so the prophets of Baal, uh, they cut themselves and they danced around this altar all day, and nothing happened. And Elijah started to mock them and said, well, maybe, maybe your God's asleep, or maybe he's relieving himself. Nothing happens. And then very dramatically, as Elijah likes to do, he pours water all over his sacrifice. And he digs a trench around his sacrificial altar, and he fills that with water too. There's no way that this is going to catch fire. And then he prays to the one true God, and God consumes the sacrifice in fire immediately. Pretty awesome. And then Elijah slaughters all of the prophets of Baal, more than a hundred of them. Now, the thing you need to know about this, though, is that the king, and even more so his wife, was very partial to the god Baal and to these priests of Baal. And so this put Elijah in a little bit of a difficult situation after this prophetic duel, because even though he was in the right, and even though he had proved distinctly that the one true God was, in fact, the one true God, and that Baal was nothing, he became a refugee. And so he flees to the hills. This is where we have the, the story of the still small voice calling to him. But the problem is he's very defeated. He's been working hard and long for years trying to call the people of God back to God, and they weren't listening. And he felt like he was the only one left. In fact, that's what it says in the passage we read today. He says, I, even I only, am left. And God responds to him and says this, chapter 19, verse 18. First of all, he, the verses before, he says, I'm going to send you replacements. I'm going to give you a new king. I'm going to give you a new prophet to take your place because you're obviously tired. You need a bit of a rest. You need to retire. But then he says this, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave enough people in Israel, 7,000 of them, that all hope is not lost. In fact, as isolated as you feel right now, even right now, all hope is not lost because these 7,000 are there. They exist. They love me. They still serve me. They still follow me. And many years later, the Apostle Paul reflected on this incident as he was writing to the Roman church in the letter to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, he refers back to this event with Elijah. And he says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And I think God has always been faithful to preserve a remnant throughout all of history. You can see it in the book of Judges as the people fall away from God over and over and over again, and God raises up judges to lead the people back to him and then to lead them in victory in battle. We see it with Moses in the wilderness before that. We see it in all the generations of the kings where prophets rise up and call the people back to God. We see it in people like Ezra and Nehemiah who call the people back to God after the restoration from exile in Babylon. Over and over and over again, the people of God fall away from him, but God always leaves a remnant to call the rest of them back. We didn't ultimately call our church the 7,000. We decided it was a little bit too cryptic, and so we called it Seacoast Missionary Fellowship, a little bit vanilla, and, and later we called it Anglican Church of the Resurrection, noting that our church was being resurrected from the dead. But that name always stuck with me as an important symbol of what it was we were trying to accomplish and what we have been trying to accomplish in the Anglican Church in North America and in this church, Good Samaritan, for the last 10 years. We're trying to restore the church. We're trying to take what God has left us, this remnant, and from that little bit of leaven to leaven the whole lump with the gospel. God is trying to rebuild his church and he's using us to do it and he's using GAFCON to do it worldwide. To do this though, I think it's important on a day like today to look backwards. We don't look backwards too often, uh, but I think on a day like today it's important to look backwards and say, what was and is at stake? Because most often we look back and we say, oh, Gene Robinson, homosexuality, we look at our culture. Now homosexuality is prevalent in our culture. Even homosexual marriage has been officially adopted in all of the states of the United States. This is a very different place today than it was 15 years ago. A lot has changed. Homosexuality and any sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman is against what the scriptures tell us. Sex is a gift from God used in its right context. But our culture has warped it. Not just our culture, every culture has warped it. But our culture has accepted that warming, warm, that normative, our culture has accepted that warping as normative. 
It's become the bread and butter of what we live and breathe in our culture every day. But here's the thing I want you to remember. Back then, and even today, it's not just about human sexuality. It's not just about some marginal opinion about homosexual persons that we find from the scriptures. It's something much deeper than that. It's about the authority of the scriptures over us. The scriptures interpret us. We don't interpret the scriptures. The scriptures lay as judge over us. We don't judge what's right and wrong in the scriptures. We don't get to pick and choose. I like this passage. I don't know about that passage. Maybe I'll cut it out with some scissors. That's not an option left to us as Christians because the Bible is trustworthy and true. It's been given to us from God by prophets and apostles and other people whom he's used by his Holy Spirit to write these things down for us. So we have a record of God's deeds and words throughout history, the way that he has continually called his people back to himself and the way that he's called you and I back to himself. Our God is a God of restoration, of renewal. He is our redeemer. And he pulls us out of the sin of our lives and puts us back in a right place with him. And so scriptural authority is the key issue here. And from that, the gospel itself is at stake. Because when the church gets to a place where it ignores the scriptures and it no longer says that sin is sin, but in fact says, do whatever you want to. If there's no sin, then there's no need of a savior. And the very work of Jesus in his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension has to be altered and changed if you've gotten rid of the idea of sin. Of course, again, we're not at liberty to do that because the scriptures sit over us. We don't sit over the scriptures. And so God has and is calling his church back to himself. And this is where GAFCON comes in. If we fast forward just a few years from 2003 to 2008, a number of important things have happened. Churches have started leaving the Episcopal Church, realizing that they can't stay in a denomination that has fully accepted homosexuality any longer. More importantly, they can't stay in a church that's rejected scriptural authority any longer. And this church was among those. When we left the Episcopal Church, though, where did we go? We all became Kenyans. That's exactly what happened. We all became Kenyans because the bishops of Kenya gave us Episcopal oversight. They provided us with a spiritual covering to protect us, to keep us accountable, to watch over us. And so they appointed bishops, including Bishop Bill Murdoch, to be bishops in America as a part of their college of bishops to watch over American Kenyan parishes. And churches from Uganda and Nigeria did the same thing. And so we were blessed to have these people watching over us and caring for us and providing us shelter from the storm. And in 2008, all of these leaders from around the globe, bishops, priests, deacons, and lay people, gathered in Jerusalem for an important conference called GAFCON to say, this is what we believe, this is where we're going, and we will not turn away from the scriptures 
and we will not turn away from Orthodox theology. And we want the whole Anglican Church to turn and come with us. That was an important statement. And in fact, they created something called the Jerusalem Statement, which contains the Jerusalem Declaration, which is now what we use as our uh, statement of faith as a congregation, as a diocese, as a province, the Anglican Church in North America. It's become a rallying point for the global Orthodox Anglican Church worldwide. But as a part of the statement, which contains the Jerusalem Declaration, it said this. It said, our fellowship is not breaking away from the Anglican Communion, period. We, together with many other faithful Anglicans throughout the world, believe the doctrinal foundation of Anglicanism, which defines our core identity as Anglicans, is expressed in these words. The doctrine of the Church is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the Church as are agreeable with the said Scriptures. Hear that again. The authority of the Scriptures is key. In particular, such doctrine is to be found in the 39 Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Ordinal. We intend to remain faithful to this standard, and we call on others in the communion to reaffirm and return to it. While acknowledging the nature of Canterbury as an historic see, we do not accept that Anglican identity is determined necessarily through recognition by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that was an important statement because up to that point, the way you knew you were an Anglican was that your bishop would be invited once every 10 years to the Lambeth Conference which was a symbol of being in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the the first bishop of the Anglican Communion and still has an important role in the Anglican Communion, but that role is diminishing. Why is it diminishing? Because he hasn't upheld this standard. The uh, The Archbishop of Canterbury in 2003 didn't uphold the standard, and the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, hasn't hasn't upheld this standard either. And so the question of whether someone is Anglican or not is no longer limited to those who are in communion with Canterbury. What this statement is saying is that it's far more important that you believe the right things coming from the Holy Scriptures than that you are invited to a conference in Lambeth once every 10 years. That has an an historical importance, but doesn't have the importance of being under the word of God and upholding faithful theology. Later that same year, our diocese, the Diocese of Pittsburgh, left the Episcopal Church. And that convention was hosted at the church that I was the rector at at the time. And our son, Kieran, who you all know, was a baby. He had just been born a few months earlier. And so as we held our baby, and as we voted to leave the Episcopal Church, and as the bishops of South America gave us their covering, Carrie and I both broke down in tears because we realized that we have a church for our children. We only had one at that time, now we have six. But we had a church for our children, a church that would remain faithful to the scriptures and that would pass down this this faith faithfully to yet another generation. And then a year later, the ACNA was formed at the direction of GAFCON, this global movement that said, North America needs a faithful Anglican province. The Episcopal Church isn't doing it anymore. And so we call on you, the Anglican Church in North America, to be in formation and to start. And so our 
covering, again, comes from GAFCON, this global movement of faithful Anglicans around the world. And that was in 2009 when our church moved into this property, Good Samaritan, now Anglican Church, no longer Episcopal Church. And we've been here in this property as ACNA Anglicans for 10 years. In fact, this is our 10-year celebration, and so we're going to mark that occasion with a couple of important events this fall. First of all, we're going to have a homecoming celebration in September, on September 8th. Mark your calendars and invite everybody who's ever been a part of this church because we want them to all come back and celebrate the 10 years of ministry that God has done in this place, in this property. And then in December, we're going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the consecration of this building when Bishop Murdoch came from New England as our Kenyan bishop and consecrated this place as a holy place set apart for God and for the work of the ministry of this church. That will be December 8th. So just remember the, the number 8 and September and December, and you'll get both of those on, on your mind and on your calendar. We want you to be there for that, and we want to invite all these people back to us to celebrate with us, everyone who's ever been a part of the ministry of this church. The continuing united stand of GAFCON for the renewal of the Anglican Communion remains important today. There are still battles to fight, even though it feels settled here. This is part of why I don't talk about it very much anymore. I don't want us to be focusing on the past. I want us to be focusing on the future and the mission that God is calling us to. But it is important occasionally to look back on the past to make sure that we remember where we've come from and to remain sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. In 2018, GAFCON came together again, again in Jerusalem, marking the 10th anniversary of the Jerusalem Statement. And they wrote a letter to the churches in which they said, we are not leaving the Anglican Communion. We are the majority of the Anglican Communion, seeking to remain faithful to our Anglican heritage. Listen to that. The majority of Anglicans worldwide are part of GAFCON, an orthodox, faithful movement of Anglicans under the authority of the scriptures. The majority. What is a remnant? It's a leftover. It's a small piece. We're not talking about a remnant anymore. We're not talking about the 7,000. We're talking about the majority of Anglicans worldwide are a part of this movement. And they're calling the rest of the church back to the scriptures, back to the one true God. The church in Kenya that sheltered us has five million Anglicans. The church of Uganda has nine million Anglicans. The church of Nigeria has 18 million Anglicans. Just this past week, Carrie took our kids to the library. There was this is the summer reading program season, so there's all kinds of programs happening every day at the library. But they had one uh, that was uh, African folklore stories. And so they went and they attended, they had drums, they had some fun stories. Uh, but Carrie went and introduced herself to the woman leading the presentation later, and she said she was from Nigeria. And Carrie said, well, we have a lot of friends in Nigeria. And the woman was kind of surprised and shocked and said, why do you have friends in Nigeria? And she said, well, we're part of the Anglican Church, and so we've had lots of people uh, over the years that we've met from Nigeria, and we still have friendships with these people. And she got this big, bright smile on her face, and she said, in Nigeria, Anglicans are everywhere. Now just think about that the next time you introduce yourself to someone and say, I'm part of an Anglican church, and they scratch their heads and they say, what, what's an Anglican? 
Have you ever had that experience? I think most of you have. Anglican is not a common word here, but there are places in the world where everybody's an Anglican. It's very common. And we're a part of that church worldwide. We have a place in that global fellowship of churches. We have a place among Orthodox Anglicans, the third largest denomination in the world, proclaiming the gospel from one generation to another. GAFCON continues to preserve Orthodox Anglicanism for future generations. It continues to offer assistance to churches who are now, in 2019, where we were 10 years ago, stuck in Anglican provinces that are drifting away from their moorings in places like Ireland and New Zealand and England. Isn't it interesting that England, which was a dominant worldwide empire and which spread Anglicanism throughout the world, gospel Anglicanism throughout the world, isn't it interesting that that mother church is now drifting away and the other Western churches are drifting away and the people to whom we preached the gospel 50 years ago are now rising up and preaching the gospel back to us? Praise God indeed. And we continue to pray for the repentance of those parts of the Anglican Communion which have abandoned the faith once delivered to the saints and hope for eventual reunion with them. Not a superficial oneness that masks underlying division, but a reunion that is united in the truth of the scriptures. In Galatians 6.1, just after what we read today, just after Paul talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to restore the church in a spirit of gentleness, calling them back to the foundations of the faith once delivered to the saints and recorded for us in the scriptures. And GAFCON today continues to move forward in mission. They've recently launched nine ministry networks to share ideas and to move forward a mission worldwide. Networks to deal with the suffering church, with church planting, theological education, bishops training, women's ministry, youth and children's ministry, global mission partnerships, prayer, a lawyer's task force, and a task force on sustainable development. All of those things fall under the heading of what GAFCON is doing worldwide. It can be tempting to look back and lament the things that we have lost from time to time. And all of you who were part of Good Samaritan Episcopal Church know what it feels like to go through that loss. But it's important to keep our eyes focused on where God is leading us into the future and what he's doing right now. When Elijah taps Elisha on the shoulder and says, God is calling you to be prophet in my place, This is what Elisha did. He was out plowing his field with 12 yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen power, by the way. Any of you who have ever seen oxen and know what massive animals those are, he had a lot of of oxen power going, going for him. But what does he do with those oxen, his livelihood? It says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. That's not the right passage. 
19. Oh, wrong chapter. 21. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Is Elisha going back to farming? He'd be plowing on his own strength, not on the strength of his oxen. He's burned his bridges. He's saying, I'm not doing that anymore. God's called me to something new, and I'm moving forward. And I think Jesus probably had that in mind when he says to the man in the gospel today, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When we decide to follow Jesus, it's all in. It says in that old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's what it is to follow Jesus. We set our hands to the kingdom of God and we turn away from everything that calls us backwards. We don't want to be sucked back into our old lives. We don't want to be sucked back into sin. We don't want to be sucked back into the muck and mire of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because we have decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. It's moving forward in the direction he calls us to. Moving forward in mission. Proclaiming the gospel that's found in the pages of scripture to everyone who will open their ears to hear it drawing them back to the reconciling God who loves them and desires to save them from sin and death and hell. What an important calling that is. Galatians 5.1 warns us not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. It reminds us what the fleshly life looks like. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are not the things that Christians are called to behave like and to participate in. By contrast, we are called to be a part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit himself dwelling in us and causing this new fruit to come from us. It says in the scriptures, a tree is known by its fruit. And so if we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, this is what we should look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. May we, both as individuals, as a congregation, and as a global movement, turn away from the works of the flesh and be defined by the fruit of the Spirit. May we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires and give ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and to his mission of expanding the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for every faithful Anglican around the globe. 
We thank you for the work that you've done in renewing your church. We thank you for all those who have sacrificed much for the sake of your gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless the GAFCON movement, that you would continue to call those who have turned away from the gospel back to the true confession of faith as found in the Holy Scriptures, and that your church would move forward in mission, and that the faith would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.